Hi, I'm Kathy Walker, teacher, feminist and parent, and this is Raise Her Up, a podcast from the GDST, the UK's leading family of girls' schools. With 19,000 students across 25 schools and the largest women's alumni network of its kind, we are experts in girls' education and everything that goes with it. Even as a teacher with over 20 years experience of working with young people and as a mum of two girls, I am still learning every day. I think we all are. In each episode, we'll welcome an expert guest who will address a different topic that, as modern parents, we are bound to encounter at some point. In this episode, you'll hear from Kathleen Hamilton, Programmes Director at Force of Nature, a youth non-profit who seek to empower young people to turn their eco-anxiety into action. For me, it's really important that everyone just feels that they are a community member, right? And that's actually a term I prefer even more is like a community organizer. Like that's my favorite term, because for me, if I get to get in with people who are in my community and set up projects and do things that are close to home, I think that actually it's what I do offline that counts. It's the actions that I take when no one's looking. Kathleen is a keen advocate for encouraging us to engage with our children and students to reassure, encourage and mobilize them. From the GDST, this is Raise Her Up, and this is Kathleen Hamilton. So Kathleen, thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Raise Her Up, which is coinciding with the COP26 summit in Glasgow, which is bringing parties together to realise action towards the goals of the Paris Agreement and the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Kathy, for having me. So Kathleen, tell us how you got involved in Youth Action for Climate Change and just remind us why all of this matters. I actually have been involved in climate action for about as long as I can remember. Uh, I had the absolute privilege of growing up in Southeast Asia, and I actually went to a school called the Green School in Bali, which was founded on the premise of the old education system no longer working and needing to introduce a new and perhaps more holistic education system for youth. So at the Green School, we were involved in all sorts of outdoor projects. It was The curriculum at the time was based on the Waldorf Steiner curriculum, which is really around um, engaging all senses for learning for students. So we had outdoor gardens. We worked on building, you know, renewable energy sources on campus, like from a hydroponic system in the river. Um, We worked on building structures out of bamboo, which is what the whole school was built out of. And we really learned about all of the local challenges that were really imposed as a result of students like us coming to the island to study that were, you know, led to plastic pollution. Bali has a huge issue with plastic. There are a whole number of issues that have happened as a result of the influx of tourists in Bali and kind of the imposition of Western culture onto the island. And we had a chance to learn about all of these things, including then global issues. So I feel like I've been involved in climate action and climate education for a very long time. Um, But my work at Force of Nature started about a year ago when I got back in touch with Clover, who also is a fellow alumni of the Green School in Bali. And I had been working in tech and I just realized that I needed to pivot back into climate action, which is really where my heart and soul lie. I think as more and more young people globally grow up in this world where we're taught that there are horrific things happening and that the climate is already changing. You know, we, we're actually at a point now where it's not about reversing climate change. It's not possible. We've lost too much already. Students learning this, young people learning this, growing up in a world where this is the reality 
tend to be spurred towards climate action, right? I think the what's happening with COP26 this year is so necessary. Obviously, the IPCC report, which came out only a couple of months ago, has said that it's now or never, right? This kind of pressure is something that young people learn about and feel from a very young age at school. It's the reality now. Um, and so I think that <laughs> why this is so important, why this conversation is so important is really something near and dear to my heart and near and dear to force of nature where we really see the rise of eco-anxiety, the rise of powerlessness in the face of climate change, because there is so much pressure, there is so much overwhelm in all of these conversations that it's not just about taking climate action. It's actually about allowing young people to feel their emotions wherever they are, to help mobilize those emotions, to turn all of these into action and, and be able to feel like we have agency and the ability to make real change in our communities so that we're not just stuck and frozen in the face of this looming threat, right, that we all feel. So how can we reassure young people when they feel this helpless? You know, this is an issue of such existential impact. And as you've just implied, we know we're not on track to meet the Paris Agreement goals. How can we even start to reassure? Yeah, it's a huge question, right? And I think it's something that, you know, we talk directly about young people feeling this way all the time. I can only imagine how parents feel. Um, I'm not a parent myself. Uh, what we see from parents is the same overwhelm that we see in young people, but then even more so, right? Because your whole job as a parent is to protect your children, protect your family, and in the face of something that's existential, how do you even do that? How do you even start a conversation? I think the most important thing here is realizing that young people in this instance, don't need to be protected, they need to be heard. Like as a parent, you can't halt climate change, you can't stop what's happening, you can't change the whole world to mold it to what your child needs right now, but you can slow down, have a conversation, actually acknowledge the feelings that might be coming up for your child. And I think for young people globally, now it's not about protecting them from the issue. It's about activating them around the issue. It's about having conversations about how this is making you feel as a parent scared because you can't protect them, how it's making your child feel worried because they feel too small to make a difference, right? And it's about then allowing those emotions to exist, not suppressing them, not trying to change them into positivity, but just accepting them. It's difficult for me to imagine what the future is going to be like, but I, I know that at home I can take actions. I know that in my community I can take actions. I know that in my sphere of influence, I have the power to make a difference. And I think that coming back to that center of, okay, I hear you when you say you feel worried. I feel worried too. What do you feel that you can do, right? Like where can, what's, what's a problem that's immediate and close to home? Because the thing about climate change is it is an existential threat and it's so much bigger than us and we're wired as human beings to run from those threats. We can't run from this one, right? It's so much bigger than anything we've ever faced. And I think it's it's realizing that, accepting that, having those conversations with young people, like we are biologically wired to feel the fear and anxiety that we feel around the climate crisis because it's a threat to our existence. Have that conversation, right? And then come back to home and figure out what are the small things that can be done? Where can you make your child feel empowered? What are some actions that they can take that allow them to connect with their community in a meaningful way? It's not an either or, it's a both and in this instance. In each episode of Racer Up, we hear from a member of our GDST family to gain their perspective on the matter at hand. And I think this will be a very good point for us to hear from Sophia, who is a Year 13 Sustainability Representative at Wimbledon High School. I'm Sophia Harley, a Year 13 and Wimbledon High School Sustainability Representative. 
Global warming and biodiversity loss are driving high levels of anxiety amongst young people. A global survey of 10,000 16 to 24-year-olds showed 60% were either very worried or extremely worried about climate change, and three-quarters of them said they thought the future was frightening. Over half said they think humanity is doomed. Without immediate, significant action, they have every right to be worried. Look, you don't need me to reel out all the terrifying stats about biodiversity loss, increasing global temperatures and mass extinction. But actually, from our perspective, there is something very positive about this survey. 60% of our generation recognise the urgent need for change. And 60% of our generation adds up to three quarters of a billion people. 750 million 16 to 24 year olds. And the numbers are increasing fast. The perfect antidote to climate anxiety is the hope that comes from scale. In our context, scale comes from uniting students across all GDST schools and beyond. You can't ignore the masses. With scale comes the ability to coordinate the activities and actions of willing, enthusiastic and passionate environmentalists. With scale comes hope. The hope that comes from being part of a united and growing force, composed of, for example, GDST schools, the UK Environmental Agency, Friends of the Earth and the UN IPCC, all part of the same orchestra, focused on changing the trajectory of humanity's impact on Earth. We can sit at home and be anxious, or we can take enormous hope that at some point, soon, we will be in the majority, and to not accept older generations' continued failures to make real change. It's not their future, after all. Okay, so Kathleen, Sophia is clearly an incredibly engaged young woman who is taking action and who has a real sense of agency. What if there's a parent listening who suddenly feels anxious that their child is just not not interested in this? You know, if their daughter is more concerned by friendships, clothes, homework, social media, all very normal things for young people to be involved in and, and, and concerned about. You know, are you lobbying to try and replace these slightly childish or teenage interests with eco-awareness? Oh my gosh, absolutely not. I, I'm a big proponent of like, let kids be kids, right? Like if I could have changed out the hours that I spent stressing out about my future in the climate crisis with like worrying about clothes and boys, would I have done it in a heartbeat, right? Absolutely. I think that, that we, like as what we do at Force of Nature is not about changing the way that people feel or telling young people how to feel. We get called into a lot of speaking engagements. Please come and inspire our young people around climate action, right? We're not here to tell people how to feel, especially not young people who have way too much on their plates. Like, oh my gosh, I remember being in middle school and being worried about so many things and thinking that it was the end of my world if I didn't solve those more immediate pressing challenges, right? To not be thinking about global systems, that's okay. <laughs> yeah, it's a it's it's an unusual thought to think that worrying about social media and the way you look is actually preferable to worrying about you know your existential right. um, worries in the world. I think in in every case, it's about the conversation, right? It's about opening the conversation to really meeting people where they are, meeting young people where they are, finding out how they're feeling. Because actually, the root of those concerns when you're in that those really pivotal development stages. If those concerns are not heard, if you're not able to speak about what you're worried about, those things stick with you, right? And I think in an age where we are more connected than ever, young people have more access to other people on the other side of the world, like there are so many complexities for 
someone to have to face on their own, but being able to have the conversations about them. And maybe it is, they just need to talk about what's happening on social media, right? But even being able to start that conversation and not shying away from it because it seems unimportant, but saying, why does this matter to you so much? Let's let's talk about how it makes you feel and not to judge young people for the way they're feeling about it, not to tell them they should be feeling any differently, but just to meet them where they are and be curious about it. Because in many cases, there may be something deeper happening, right? That we don't know about. And I think even, you know, I think about folks that have really gone deep into any issue. So for example, it makes me think of Cenk Oz who founded Thread Media. Like he is 16 years old and he is a young person who was concerned about like social media, right? Like he spent his time on social media and he was concerned about what he was seeing and worried that he wasn't, you know, and young people weren't able to get the kinds of like news or media that they were looking for. And he founded a media company, right? But only because he was allowed the space to be curious about what he was curious about and, you know, had the support of the people around him to pursue that curiosity in a way that allowed it to bring something to fruition that actually solved a problem that maybe some of us don't see because we're not asking those questions. So I think that that's really important with any young person is that foundation of curiosity, discovery, like nourishing that in a young person, no matter what direction that is, whether it's in the face of, you know, wanting to do something about climate action or whether it's in the face of being really frustrated about what they're seeing on social media, right? So I think that Mm -hmm. there's, there's always a way to have those conversations. And it's just about, um, yeah, really nurturing young people with the curiosity that they have. Okay. So just out of interest, what is the most engaged age group with whom you work and, and who is the most anxious? Who is the most anxious? So we primarily at Force of Nature work with students aged 14 and up, and that's just largely because we're a limited team in size and capacity, um, but also because the the work that we do, we don't necessarily have the expertise to work with students younger than 14. So because there are obviously very key like developmental differences in each age group. Um, but what I will say about who is most engaged, we've seen it across the spectrum of of youth. Like I don't think that there's one group that's more engaged than the other. What we have seen, we've seen people below the age of 12, you know, eight years old, six years old, talking about what they're worried about. There's some incredible projects out there that harness things like art as a form of expression around emotions to do with climate change. I know Letters to the Earth is another campaign in the UK that really encourages young people to think about and express their emotions around the climate crisis. And just seeing the profound nature of these statements that come out from young people about being aware and being worried that animals are going extinct before our eyes, being aware and being worried that communities nearby may not have food or access to resources the way that they do. Like I think young people are really tuned in. They're also really resilient and capable of learning and growth and, you know, uh, community building, even in the face of something this existential. And there's so much hope there to be found as well when it's when it's supported and cultivated. Um, but surveys that we've done say that 70% of all young people feel eco-anxious, right? Which is like a huge amount <laughs> of people. And even recently a study came out, um, the People's Climate Vote, which was done by a group in Oxford University, and they surveyed 1.2 million people globally. 64% of that group said that climate change was an emergency that needed immediate action. So I think more than ever, we're seeing this kind of global awareness Um, around how pressing of an issue climate change is for us at home, but also with the kind of globalization and the interconnectivity of the world, we're also seeing how it's affecting other people, right? In a way that we maybe couldn't have conceived of or accepted before. And young people are tuned into all of this. 
they they see the connections, they understand, you know, the complexity of it, and they have feelings about all of that. And that's really important. It's interesting to hear you talk about, you know, us at home and, and what we're doing um, across the globe. I mean, it's like, you know, you you did your education in Southeast Asia. You are now based in Portugal. Which country would you say, or which are the countries that are most engaged? And how are we doing in the UK? And should I brace myself for your answer? <laughs> How, how are we doing across the world? I think that I can only speak from personal experience because the scope of the world is quite large. Um, but I do, I do definitely see there's, there's this great quote that I think, um, is, is really important to remember, which is that we are, we are all in the same ocean, but we're not in the same boat. And yes, there is an awareness in places like, right, the UK, areas of the US, where there's quite a lot of privilege around the safety and comfort that we have in our own lives, right? And for me, I'm not afraid immediately for my survival, right? Like I know at the end of the day, I have a home to come back to. I have family that loves me. I have a roof over my head and I have a job that pays me money enough to live, right? And there are so many people in the world who are already facing the direct repercussions, the direct impact of climate change from extreme weather events that leave them without homes to forced migration as a result of unlivable conditions in their home country. And so I think that the most affected people and areas are definitely not in any case, right? The people who are responsible for a lot of the decisions that are made that are not enough. And there's so much direct organizing happening in those communities, right? And there's so much direct organizing happening all over the world. And so when, you know, with the question, like, are we doing enough? I think we can always be doing more. I don't think this is going to stop, right? I don't think that there's like, there's not like an end point where it's like, oh, all of this is fixed. We're in like a very complex situation across the world. And I think it's more than ever important that we get back to like our communities and community action, because I think that in this online age, it's like a salve to go online and repost a meme on Instagram or, you know, have a conversation that's public that says that your beliefs are X, Y, and Z thing. But I think the real change comes from immediate action in our communities and scaling down, not worrying about the whole wide world all the time, but saying, actually, like in my community, like, do we have recycling bins? Are there resources for people who are houseless? Are there schemes for people who maybe don't have jobs or can't get jobs due to any number of reasons? Like, are we ensuring that our schools are taking care of our children and educating them about everything happening in the world, but also what they can be doing at home? And I think that's really important um, is when we think about this global issue, we come back to center again, come back to our local communities, because each is going to deal with it in such a different way. That's reassuring because it sounds doable. It sounds pragmatic. It sounds realistic. And it's, right. and it's not panic inducing. You yeah. know, um, you know, I live in the UK. What can I possibly do uh, to, to save the Amazonian rainforest, for example? Um, let's talk for a minute about communities that you've just mentioned. So, have we plateaued, do you think, if in schools, for example, we are already using less single-use plastic? I worry sometimes that we are becoming complacent because we have managed to achieve something large within our own community, but something small on a, on a global scale. What are your thoughts around that? Yeah, I think that there's always this incredible opportunity to ask the next question, right? And I think in the case of schools that have taken 
concrete action and are raising awareness. I think that's incredible, right? Like I think that deserves a congratulations, first of all, because it's not an easy, it's no easy feat. But I do think that the next step is, okay, well, well, now what? What's the next thing that is of concern? And how are we within classrooms creating conversations about problems that are happening in the world? I remember in the Green School, I was very lucky to have an incredible set of teachers who really emphasized critical thinking, critical theory education, like current events. We were every day coming into school and looking at what are the top three events. We would have to bring in our own news article and then we would dissect what the problems were within that article and like how we could potentially address those, right? Like what are potential solutions? And I think bringing that kind of education into schools for teachers and parents and people involved in education of students to think about, okay, well, you know, we've, we can give ourselves a pat on the back for what we have done, but what else is going on in our communities? And young people are so curious and so ready to, to find solutions. And there's this optimism, right? That I think speaking to, speaking to all the activists and speaking to all the activist groups who've been doing this for a long time, they always talk about how tiring it is, right? Because it's tiring to do this work every day and to not necessarily see the mass scale systems change that you're working towards. Young people don't feel that exhaustion yet, right? <laughs> like, Or they're starting to, but if they're given reasons to hope, they will, right? Like, And if they're given projects where they can find a solution, they will do it and then give them more challenging problems and they will continue to problem solve, right? They will continue to, to find creative solutions to challenges that maybe the adults in the community are too tired to fix or don't see a way to do it, right? Absolutely. I mean, I, I'm listening to you thinking that youthful naivety and optimism is an absolutely wonderful thing. And actually, I think as parents, as adults, um, we will always want to imbue our kids with, with that hope. Um, we've spoken a little bit about what's being done at, at a macro level. And obviously this podcast is happening as the most powerful people in the world uh, come to hopefully make change and congregate in Glasgow. Um, as a role model to our younger listeners, Kathleen, and you know, no pressure, can you give us an insight into your more micro day-to-day lifestyle um, as, a, as an activist? Sure. I think it's going to be disappointing. <laughs> and the reason I say that is, is that I'm a regular everyday person. And actually, I found most activists are regular everyday people doing everyday things. We have to pick the issues that are closest to home, closest to us, and and find solutions to them that work in our lifestyles as well. Because actually, just like giving up all worldly possessions to go and live a totally off-grid lifestyle sounds like it might be a potentially appealing solution, but it's really difficult to do and actually requires you to change everything about the way that you're living, right? In my day-to-day life, like I I am vegan. I don't eat meat or consume Mm. animal products, which is actually started not as an environmental choice, but started as like dietary restrictions, but it's happened to work pretty well as an environmental (laughs) choice. You know, like I'm mindful to buy locally and, and, and not buy things in plastic packaging. I'm, you know, I spend every day working at a nonprofit that I believe is doing real good in the world because I know that my talents and passions and skills apply to the mission and apply to what the team needs. And I think there's, there's always, it's kind of two sides. I don't think we ever need perfect action, right? There's this incredible quote, and I wish I could remember the source. We don't need a hundred people taking perfect action. We need millions of people taking imperfect action, right? And that means doing whatever works for you. I remember being in school and being so stressed out because I just felt like I had all these exams I had to do and I didn't have any time to go out and volunteer in the community in the way that I wanted to. And I was reminded that actually sometimes you have to prioritize 
what's happening right now in your life and then know that there is space at the next point to do the next thing. And so maybe doing good, impactful work just means being a listening ear for your friends or having conversations that maybe people are challenged about where you actually bring up issues to your teachers or to parents in the community where you see something that's not right happening on campus or where you think that something more could be done. It's about being curious about what's out in the world and then feeling that actually you are someone that can do something and say something and use your voice or your time or your skills. It's just about choosing something that you can do. Okay. Can I uh, bring you back to the term um, activist? And can I ask you about the term eco-warrior? Do you have a preferred term? Is the term eco-warrior, has it been hijacked by tabloids? Is it a bit belittling these days or can we use it? Yeah. I mean, I think ultimately we should always question our language choices. For me, I think there's a lot of narrative around climate change. And you'll have heard that I'm using climate crisis as a term. That's because I think it is a crisis. It's not just like a change that's happening. But there are other words like eco-warrior that have been used to create potentially more hype or gear more people into paying attention to this, right? I think though I was reading an article actually just before this because I saw that that was a question you might ask. And I was like, I don't personally use that term. Why don't I use that term? And I was reading about it and, you know, there was this whole movement around war-like terminology. For me, that really creates this us versus them. And I, I think that, you know, we have seen for sure a shift in mindset around people who are willing to believe or don't believe. I mean, if I talk to my my grandparents, they're like, no, like this is all supposed to be happening. The climate's been changing, right? Like they are products of the industrial revolution. My great, My grandfather worked in oil and yeah, my grandmother doesn't, believe in the climate crisis, but she does recycle. She does compost. They do have a garden at home, you know, like they, they are connected to a local water grid where they conserve water because they see how it affects their immediate neighbors. There's like 10 people on this water grid in rural Ireland. Right. And so while on a macro scale, they don't necessarily believe in these issues on a micro scale, they believe in helping their community and they believe in, you know, being present to the needs of other people around them. And if we come back to that for a second, like that's actually more impactful than if they did believe in all the global issues, right? Because they're taking the actions. I guess that goes back to what you were saying about meeting people where they are. There's something there. And I think people can choose to call themselves what they like. I know a lot of people who resist the term activist, right? Because I think it's like putting activists on a pedestal, right? It's like an activist is someone else. It's not me. And I think for me, it's really important that everyone just feels that they, they are a community member, right? And that's actually a term I prefer even more is like a community organizer. Like that's my favorite term because for me, if I get to get in with people who are in my community and set up projects and do things that are close to home, I think that that's sometimes more impactful. Like I think being able to say, you know, actually it's what I do offline that counts. It's, it's the actions that I take when no one's looking that really matter. And that's where integrity comes into place, right? And I think it can be really tempting in a world where, we are published online all the time and everyone's watching our actions or we feel like everyone's watching our actions to do things that are performative. But what we need are like real things close to home that affect our immediate community. And so for me, eco-warrior doesn't fit what I feel like I do or want to do. But if people are like super into that term, I know it's also quite like Americanized. I believe the language around eco-warrior came from the kind of American side of the pond when people were realizing that folks weren't taking this seriously and they wanted them to think of it as a war because it's important that more people are mobilized to take action. Climate change isn't this thing that's going to happen that's going to cause the apocalypse. It's already happening. Lives are changing as a result. Like there's nothing 
we can do to stop what's going on right at this moment, but we can help and we can mitigate and we can shift the way that we do things going forward so that it doesn't get worse. But it's not just like this war that's going to be fought and then finish. Like we have to systematically change the way that we are living on this planet. (laughs) I listened to this podcast the other day. It's actually the Force of Nature podcast. So quick plug. But in the podcast, there was an episode on plastic. And what someone was saying was plastic is not the problem. It's the fact that we designed plastic and then we said, oh, you can throw it away. If we had designed plastic with circularity in mind, where we had said, here's this incredible tool. And also when you're done using it, this is what it can be turned into. Absolutely. I mean, it occurs to me, we do need that complete mindset shift, especially in the wake of the amount of PPE that is being used in, you know, um, in the pandemic, because to my knowledge, that is not recycled. And I find that, you know, utterly um, appalling, but, but there's no escape from that because we, we have to use that PPE at the moment. Fewer companies who have designed from recycled materials, but because it's not the mainstream, it's not the easiest way of doing things. And it's not something that's central. Like if we think about even the whole plastic industry who create plastic products, they probably don't have the machinery needed to then recycle that plastic because it was never designed into the plan. This idea of imagining a different way of doing things, imagination is such an incredible tool and it's something young people are so good at, right? So let young people solve the problems and bring this into the education system and let them have a field day with it and encourage them because they're going to be the people that are designing the systems going forward. And if we had always thought like this, maybe we could have done better in the first place, right? But we have an opportunity now to do something. And so we have to. We do. Let's uh, return to the home environment. How can we get families thinking about this? What can parents be doing? You mentioned earlier on that this is about animals, about wildlife, about food, about homelessness, about packaging. Is it about tapping into the things that your children care most about or are most interested in? You know. Yeah, absolutely. I am a huge advocate and at Force of Nature, we're huge advocates for as you've kind of heard me speak about this idea of, of, of young people actually kind of already knowing their direction in many ways. Like I think as a parent, um, you know, I'm really grateful to my parents for, for nurturing whatever curiosity I had at any given point in time. Right. And it means that I, I do a lot of different things and in a lot of different ways, but I look at, you know, the parents of young activists. I look at the parents of, of students who have gone on to create incredible projects. And sometimes it's not the parents, right? Sometimes it's teachers, sometimes it's other people in their lives, but it's, it's that total acceptance and support of what they need and what they're doing at that moment. And I think as, as parents and at home, the best thing to do for your children in many cases is to just keep them curious. Um, and keep being curious with them about what they're curious about. And, you know, I do think there's things like obviously getting outside if you can is really beneficial, like getting involved in your local community with your children. I think for parents to meet their young people where they are, I know I keep saying that. And what does that even mean, right? It means asking the questions and starting as a parent from a place of curiosity that allows you to continue exploring things with your children. Like I think of a friend of mine, all of her conversations are question led. There is very little of her telling him what to do and a lot more of her asking him what he wants to do. And even in the disciplinary side of things, right? This, this blew my mind, but with her and her son, it's always like, do you think that was the right thing to do in that moment? And she's taught him enough about the values 
that they have in the household that he's like, actually, no, that probably wasn't the best. He doesn't say it exactly like that. He's four, right? But but you get the idea. Like the fact that it's even question-led for me totally changed my paradigm in thinking about how how to work with people, not just children, but like people in general. Like if you can start with, you know, your children as a place of like instilling values, like knowing that they're watching your every move and then at home, like what decisions are you making that are important to you and your family? And you might say, actually, it is the way that we eat, or maybe it is the way that we dress, or maybe it's the products that we buy. Like these things that you do as parents affect your children forever. That's a lot of pressure, but you know, they do. And, and what a gift to be able to set your children off on a path with, with values that you believe in. And they'll go on to find their own as well. And as they start finding those and and they will, ask about them. Why does that matter to them? And maybe they'll help you change your mind as well. Kathleen, thank you so much. Thank you for your energy and your excitement and your hope and your enthusiasm. And above all, thank you for reminding us of how achievable it is for us to be making positive change in our own families and our own communities. Absolutely. You're so welcome. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Raise Her Up from the GDST. To hear all the experts we have on this series and to make sure you don't miss one, please subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, if you could leave a review and a five-star rating, it'll help other parents and carers to find the podcast so they can listen and learn too. I'm Cathy Walker. Join me on the next episode of Raise Her Up from the GDST when I'll be with career coach and author Erica Sosner. What is it that we're doing within our education of young women that make them feel that they must be wholly competent before they even consider putting their hat in the ring? Growth is exciting and fun and empowering. I don't think that they lack confidence. I think they are attached to the idea that they should already be something they haven't worked for. I'll see you then.